Those of you who joined us at both of our conferences this year, the Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University and at Gasparilla Inn learned about our MC Squared course. The Mindful Community Collective is a push to get leaders, companies, coaches, and individuals to use practical ways to heal loneliness and disconnection in our relationships, which we know impacts our physical health more than any other factor. We have built the eight-week experience on six core habits, such as deep listening, speaking your truth, and forgiveness. You can find out more about what we are up to at mindfulcommunitycollective.com. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dan Buettner is the founder of Blue Zones, an organization that helps Americans live longer, healthier, and happier lives. He's a New York Times bestselling author and has written about his groundbreaking work on longevity in four best-selling books. This month, he's come out with a new book, sure to be a bestseller, called The Blue Zones Challenge, which is a four-week plan for living a longer, better, and healthier life. Welcome, Dan, to Health Gig. I am delighted to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. We wanted to start with a little bit about you. I think many people know about the Blue Zones, but they might not know your background. You're an explorer, a National Geographic fellow. You're an endurance cycler, among many other things. So tell us about you and what made you a pioneer in longevity. Well, when other university grads were going off to do useful and productive things with their careers, I rode my bike. I biked from Alaska to Argentina, 15,000 miles and set a world record. I biked around the world and I biked across Africa. Those were all unsupported expeditions. It took eight years of my life, but there's no better way to get an education of the world. And also, I believe, develop an empathy and also a sensitivity to the great wisdom of traditional peoples around the world. And from there, I started a company that let an online audience direct teams of experts to solve mysteries. And the mysteries that interested us were why the Maya civilization collapsed and did Marco Polo go to China and what happened to the Anasazi people. And once again, through this experience, we found most of the best clues by talking to the descendants of those traditional people, the descendants of the Maya and of the Anasazi, who are the, now the Hopi people and the Uyghurs, for example, living in China. And through there, we got a perspective that's gone largely unmined in understanding these mysteries. And we actually solved several of them. We made national news. In the year 1999, I read a study from the World Health Organization that found that Okinawans, people living in the southeastern extreme of Japan, had the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. They get what most of us want. They live a long time without developing heart disease and diabetes and cancers and uh, dementia, even a fifth the rate of dementia. And I recognize this mystery is similar to the mysteries I've been solving. And I knew that the answer lay not in their genetics because they were a, a melting pot of people, but rather in some sort of traditional practices. So once again, following the same veins, shall we say, to solve a mystery. And 
I think we did a pretty good job at articulating why the Okinawans live so long. And by reason, there must be other parts of the world where people live a long time. I got a grant from the National Institutes on Aging to hire demographers to look for more of these longevity hotspots, which we came to call blue zones. And then an assignment from National Geographic to ultimately write a cover story on finding these places, but more importantly, trying to unpack what these statistically longest lived people can teach us about living longer. And that's been the basis of my work for the better part of the last two decades. How many blue zones exactly are there? There are five. Five. So the longest lived women, and indeed the longest lived population in the history of the world are Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Longest lived men in the world live in the highlands of Sardinia, specifically the Noral province. On the island of Ikaria, Greece, very close to Turkey, we have a population living seven years longer, but largely without dementia. In the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, a population of people who have half the rate of middle-aged mortality, they have about a two-fold better chance of reaching a healthy age 95 than we do in America. And they do this spending one-fifteenth the amount we do on health care. These politicians spend a lot of time quibbling about Obamacare or what the other side of the aisle wants to have. And we should be paying attention to what Costa Ricans are doing because they are getting more done with less, vastly less than we are, and producing far better outcomes. And then in the United States here, it's among the Seventh-day Adventists. They're conservative Methodists. I focused in and around Loma Linda, California, but this population is living about 10 years longer. Adherent Adventists live about 10 years longer than their next door neighbors. Uh, or the next town over, actually, Redlands. And so I reason that these people have achieved the outcomes we want. If we could find the common denominator or detect a pattern that we may indeed have a real fountain of youth, not some hocus-pocus superfood or supplement or Mm -hmm. snake oil that some telemarketer is selling us, but traditional people who live real lives, who have actually made it into their mid-90s, and in some cases, beyond 100 without the diseases that cost our country, by the way, about $3.6 trillion a year, most of it unnecessary. I want to talk about the common denominators, but I want to ask you some technical questions. Like, how did you find the blue zones? Are you looking for more? And why are they blue and like not green zones or, you know, (laughs) a different color zone? Sardinia, Italy, Actually, that was first identified by a doctor there named Gianni Pess. And he was going through census data and finding where centenarians were living or have lived over the last century and putting a blue check mark on a map. And in the Noral province, there were so many blue check marks that it just was a blue blob. So he started calling it the blue zone. Michel Poulon, the demographer, later confirmed that. Okinawa, Japan was largely the work of the Wilcox brothers, Bradley and Craig, brought it to life. So they've done the demographic work. And essentially, the way you show it's a blue zone is you have to go back 100 years and find a swath of birth, say, between 1915 and 1920. And then you follow those births for 100 years. And you see how many people are still alive. And then you correct for emigration. And you get a number, Extreme Longevity Index, it's called. It's a lot of work. It took us three years. It's that work that 
enabled us to speak with some authority that these people, it's not just hearsay or. You just you pick know, them like, out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, a couple other, since blue zones has become a popular term and several other places that claim to be a blue zone, they're not. Mm. Okabama Valley is not a blue zone. Hunza Valley or Shangri-La is not a blue zone. The Caucasus is a, not a blue zone. There's no blue zone in Scandinavia. There's just these five places and, and, and they're hard to find. The other two, Costa Rica and Icaria, I'm largely responsible for identifying those places. Oh, I'm responsible for identifying the Adventists as well. And through National Geographic grants, we hired demographers in many cases to go through worldwide census data to find the needle in the haystack. To your question, I don't think there are any more blue zones. And the reason is, is globalization and largely the American diet or the sort of global diet now is so toxic that it is just completely destroying any hope of longevity anywhere in the world where essentially if a McDonald's and a Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken have arrived, the blue zones are going to die Yeah, or never going to happen in the first place. Living long is one thing, but isn't this about living long and healthy at the same time? Yes. Just to be clear, this is not the type of longevity that promises you're going to live to 120. The capacity of our bodies, your body, Doral, mine, everybody listening right now, we do everything right. We should make it to about 93. That's the maximum average life expectancy. So if you don't develop chronic disease, your body should go to 93. And then it's programmed to move out of the way for younger generations. And Right now, life expectancy is 77.3. It's dropped quite a bit because of COVID. But we're cheating ourselves to 15 years or so of life expectancy because of uh, the way we eat, our lack of movement, our lack of social connectivity, uh, the uh, contaminants in our environment. And uh, Blue Zones just shows that, yes, you know, if you do these things, you, everybody listening here, you guys all have an extra 15 years. What are the common denominators of longevity in these disparate parts of the world? When it comes to physical activity, they're not exercising. It's a completely different format than we think about. And we think about the way to health is find some program, CrossFit or yoga, and get it on our outlook and make sure we do it every day. The Blue Zone way is they live in environments where every time they go to work or friend's house or out to eat, it occasions a walk. They haven't engineered out all the physical activity from their lives with mechanical conveniences that they still do yard work by hand and housework by hand and kitchen work. They're kneading bread and so forth. They have a garden out back. My team calculates that they move every 20 minutes or so, keep their metabolisms high all day long, burn more calories than you ever would sitting at your desk all day and then trying to burn it off at the gym, which never works, by the way. They have vocabulary for purpose. They're not waking up with the existential stress of not knowing what they're doing with their life. They have sacred daily rituals that reduce some of the stress of the human condition. They pray, they take naps, they honor their ancestors for a few minutes every day. They do happy hour. I wrote now today two books on the diets of longevity. One's called The Blue Zone Solution. The other one's The Blue Zone Kitchen. I worked with Harvard. If you want to know what a 100-year-old ate to live to be 100, you can't just ask them because they don't remember. If I asked you what you had for lunch a week ago Tuesday, you probably couldn't tell me. So 
you can't really ask a hundred year old to tell you what they were eating when they were a kid or teenager or young adult or newly retired. So for that, we spent a long time finding dietary surveys, which captured the daily eating habits throughout time, throughout the last 80 years in all five blue zones. And when you average that together through a process called a meta-analysis, we find that 90 to 100% of what they put in their mouths are whole plant-based foods. They're eating meat, but only about five times a month. So a little more than once a week, very little fish and eggs, no dairy, no cow's dairy. They might eat a little Marino cheese or feta cheese. But overwhelmingly, they're eating a high complex carbohydrate diet. And what that means is it's full of whole grains, wheat, rice, and corn, 70 or 80 different types of greens, tubers like sweet potato. The Okinawans, longest-lived women in the world, fully two-thirds of their dietary intake until about 1970 was purple sweet potatoes. So go figure on that one. They snack on nuts. People eating a handful of nuts live about two years longer than people uh, who don't eat nuts. And then the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world, and this is an important source of not only protein, Americans seem to be obsessed with protein, but also fiber, which is, I would argue, much more important in the American diet at this point in time than protein is. Beans. I eat about a cup of beans a day. And if you're eating a cup of beans a day, it's probably worth four extra years of life expectancy. They are intermittent fastingly. They tend to eat a huge breakfast, a medium-sized lunch, and little or no dinners. Actually, the healthiest pattern, and there's been research done on this, is exactly what the Adventists do. They tend to eat breakfast at about 10, huge breakfast, and then a dinner, modest dinner at four, and that's it. That seems to be the ideal for both weight loss and metabolic health. And then they put their families first. They keep their aging parents nearby, which is actually very important because you put your aging parent in a retirement home and their life expectancy drops by up to four years. So keeping them nearby where they're engaged, where they're expected to contribute, sent the message that they're important. That has enormous psychosomatic impact and psychological impact on older people's propensity to move and take their medicines and they tend to belong to a faith, almost all of them. So that's worth up to four years of extra life expectancy. And then one of the big takeaways is that they tend to occupy or surround themselves with small, committed friends who watch out for them on a bad day, who are psychological safety net, in many cases, a financial safety net. And the, mo the big thing is they reinforce the healthy behaviors. We now know that if your three best friends are obese, there's about 150% better chance that you'll be overweight yourself. That smoking and drinking are contagious. That unhappiness and loneliness are contagious, measurably contagious, by the way. Paying attention to who you're surrounding yourself with is a really big blue zone lesson for living longer. I heard you describe it as the secret to living longer is tenderness to the body and mind. You don't have to go to the gym and kill yourself and then sit all day. You just need to move. You just need to do the gentle, simple things all day long. Yes. Especially after age 30 or so, walking provides about 90% of the physical activity benefits of training for a marathon. You should do some weight-bearing exercise occasionally, keep your bones strong. 
But while just walking, if you can get the average American walking, and I argue we've taken the wrong approach of sort of finger wagging, it's your responsibility to get physical activity. It doesn't work. People don't like to be told what to do. They don't like people telling them that they lack responsibility or self-control. In my work largely, which I've done for over 12 years, is I help cities design their streets for human beings. And we find we can raise the physical activity level of an entire population by 20%, not by scolding or guilting people, but by making it safe for them to walk to the grocery store or their coffee shop, by making it safe for kids to walk to school. We have such a car-centric attitude the way we build our cities. And the enlightened cities in America, like Fort Worth, Texas, and Naples, Florida, they're starting to reimagine their cities as a place for human beings and not just for cars and noise and exhaust and the sloth that comes from driving everywhere. Yeah. So can you tell us about your well-being initiative and how many cities it's in and how it actually works and what you focus on with that initiative? So the key insight in blue zones, none of these people in the five areas are better people than we are. They don't have better discipline. They don't have better diets. They don't have greater endurance. The key insight is they live in environments where the healthy choice is not only easy, but often unavoidable. So the cheapest and most accessible foods are these peasant foods that they know how to make taste delicious, beans and grains, and et cetera. Their villages are made for walking. The option to be lonely is not there because they're running into their friends in the street. and They're expected to show up to religious services and village festivals. They tend to live in multifamily houses. They know their sense of purpose and they live their sense of purpose. So about 12 years ago, a grant from AARP, I struck out to manufacture a blue zone in an American city, but not by trying to tell them what to do, but by reshaping the nudges and defaults. And over the course of about two years, we managed to raise their life expectancy by all over three years, and we saved them about 40% off their healthcare costs. And that made big national news, and it really launched our company. We now have about 200 employees. We work in 54 cities. And essentially, the deal is the mayor and the city manager and the chamber of commerce and the superintendent of schools all have to say, we really want this and show it. And then we find funding usually from insurance companies or hospital systems or private foundations. And we go to work over a five-year period. And during that five years, we work with city council to help them identify and implement the policies that favor healthy food over junk food, that favor the pedestrian over the motorist, that favor the non-smoker over the smoker. And it turns out there, we never go in and tell cities what to do. That would be nanny state. Instead, we come in and we show them the evidence and we get consensus on what would be effective and feasible in each of these cities. And it turns out there has not been a city in America so far that hasn't seen, wow, it would be easy to change that code or change that municipal law to favor health. It just involves showing them. For example, in a neighborhood where there's billboard advertising, that neighborhood has a BMI or obesity rate about 10% higher than the same neighborhood that simply says no to billboard advertising. So we will suggest that maybe you might want to think about 
you know, getting rid of billboards advertising. And you know what? Nobody misses the billboards when they're gone. Right. And weight starts to drop. So we show the evidence. And a lot of times, most time there's will. And then also in these cities, we administer a blue zone certification program for schools, restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches. And we sometimes get up to half of all buildings blue zone certified. So when you walk into a blue zone building, you're nudged into moving more. The food choices are 30 or 40% healthier. There is a policy so for people to identify and live their purpose. And then we have a third squad that gets about 15% of the population to take a blue zone challenge. Mm. And that's what I've just written a book about recently. It's how as an individual, if you wanted to learn from these blue zones, what you would do to add good years. Tell us about the Blue Zones Challenge, your new book, and why is it important now? January here, people start thinking of resolutions. And the British Journal of Medicine just came out with yet another article showing that diets don't work. You know, it's it's sort of Einstein's definition of insanity, trying the same thing over and over and hoping for a different outcome. Diets tend to work for three to six months and then they fail universally. So taking a page from Blue Zones, what the Blue Zone Challenge does is it shows you, okay, here's the diet of the world's longest of people. We gamified a little bit, essentially whole food plant-based. We ask people to do it for a month, but we make it fun. But mostly we show people how to set up their kitchen, their bedrooms, their homes, their workplaces, their commute, and their social circle so that they are unconsciously nudged into making better choices throughout the day. So I'll give you an example. According to Cornell Food Lab, we make about 220 food choices a day. Are we going to put salt on our food? Are we going to put hot sauce? Are we going to have one serving or two? Are we going to have water or soda with dinner? Are we going to have dessert? Are we going to have a piece of bread? Am I going to put butter or margarine on? Only about 10% of those decisions are conscious. The other 90%, they're just, we're on autopilot. So what the Blue Zone Challenge does is it shows you how to set up your life so those unconscious choices are mindlessly better. And therein lies the enormous opportunity. That's exactly what people in the Blue Zones do. So it takes people on a four-week program to systematically change their surroundings so they'll mindlessly move more, eat better, know and live their sense of purpose, and socialize with the right kind of people more. And that's what we find manifestly helps people live longer around the world. You're all about making healthy choices mindless and easier. Correct. Women supposedly live longer than men. Is that true, generally? Yes. And how about the lifespan of Americans compared to other countries? There's generally a correlation between the GDP or wealth of a nation and the life expectancy. America doesn't do a very good job at all. We're about 40th in the world in life expectancy, and we spend more per capita on healthcare than anybody else in the world. So we're doing a crappy job at producing longevity. For every one male centenarian or one guy who reaches 100, there are five females that reach 100 in America. But in blue zones, the proportion is about one to one. So there's something in blue zones that favor men, actually. And it, it, it may just be women tend to be more socially connected in America than men are. 
you know, men are often kind of lone wolves or don't have quite the circle of friends. In blue zones, they tend to be more social. So that might explain some of it. Your chances of reaching 100 in America right now are about one in 2,500. So in all probability, making it to 100, you have to have won the genetic lottery. But as I said earlier, making it to 93, you can do with an average hand, so to speak, mm-hmm. average genetic hand. There's a lot of talk about loneliness in the wellness world now and the importance of relationship health. And I thought it was really interesting when I heard you on YouTube talking about how our friends can be negative or positive. Can you just touch on that again for a minute? As my grandma used to say, show me your friends, I'll tell you your future. So it's actually a a Yale researcher named Nicholas Christakis who did the statistical work to show our friends have a measurable impact on our health. The most important thing to take away from this discussion, Doral, is that when it comes to longevity, there's no short-term fix. There's no pill, there's no supplement, there's no superfood, there's nothing even on the scientific horizon for humans that is shown to stop, slow, or reverse aging. So when it comes to longevity, you have to think about things you will do for decades, not just for a few months. Mm -hmm. Diets don't last. Exercise programs don't last. Even taking supplements, if you look at the data on supplement taking, people don't take them for very long. Mm-hmm. Friends, on the other hand, are long-term adventures. Mm-hmm. If you think about who your five best friends are or three best friends, I'll bet you many of them have been around for decades. And because we know friends have a measurable impact on your behaviors, curating the right circle of friends is one of the most powerful things you can do for the long run for adding good years to your life. If you hang out with friends who sit around, smoke cigarettes and drink Coke and watch TV, guess what you're likely to do? As opposed to proactively going out and finding friends who play pickleball or Mm. who like to walk or who are just on fire to learn a second language. That's all contagious. If someone wants to begin by making small, sustainable changes, what would you advise them to begin with to live long? Just to rip off that last point is take stock. I mean, actually write down who your best friends are and do an honest assessment. We actually have a tool in the book that allows you to assess your friends. We don't tell you to dump your old unhealthy friends, but we do want your eyes wide open. And then if all your friends are unhealthy and bad habits, we encourage you then to go out and make new friends and uh, add some healthy friends to your immediate network. That has a big impact. This is going to sound counterintuitive, but knowing your sense of purpose is worth about eight extra years of life expectancy over being rudderless in life. So people kind of gloss over, well, what what do you mean by purpose? Purpose is the convergence between your passions, what you're good at, what you like to do, and what you can give the world. And I actually suggest people sit down with a blank screen or a a piece of paper and write those out. Mm -hmm. A list of what am I good at? What are my passions? What do I like to do? What are the outlets for these things? Put it right in front of you in black and white and then go do it. For most Americans, it's not their job. So it's going to have to be some hobby or uh, in most cases, it's simply volunteering. Passionate about the plight of animals. Volunteer at the Humane Society. You hate the idea of people going hungry in America. There's food shelves in every 
city who need volunteers. Far more powerful than people realize. We know that volunteers have lower BMIs, lower rates of heart disease, and measurably lower healthcare costs. My main book is the Blue Zone Kitchen when it comes to recipes for longevity, but I've included some in the Blue Zone Challenge. The secret to eating healthier boils down to this. It's eating a whole food plant-based diet, but the most important ingredient is not beans or tofu or bitter melon, it's taste. You have to find a half a dozen whole food plant-based meals you'll love. And I recommend you sit down with a plant-based cookbook. If you and your family, you page through it, you identify a half a dozen recipes that look good to you and you cook them. You actually gain the skills of buying this food and combining it and cooking it. Usually a crock pot, by the way, is very useful for, or a uh, Instapot is very useful for this. And you actually taste them. Once you taste a whole food plant-based meal, like I have a Sardinian minestrone with beans and, and tomato and extra virgin olive oil or a longevity stew with red onions, delicious. Once you taste these foods and you and your family love them, I don't have to remind you that it's good for your heart or you're less likely to develop dementia or it's good for the environment or addresses the cruelty to animals, the hundred or so billion animals we slaughter every year to satisfy our bacon and burger habit. If you'd like it, you're going to eat it. <laughs> right. That's what's going to make it last. Right. That's really the, one of the most powerful things you can do, I think, to start to change your diet, lose weight, lower your chances of dying prematurely. So how has COVID affected how we're looking at our lives? First of all, life expectancy has dropped by a year and a half since COVID. So it was going up for over 100 years, and now it's dipped. I'm a contrarian when it comes to COVID. I think we're going to look back at the good old days of COVID. According to Gallup, most Americans, 70% of Americans don't like their jobs. COVID has given a lot of Americans, some of many cases force, but many cases just the permission to quit or leave their jobs and reassess, and find something that lines up better. That's why I think that these uh, restaurants are having a heck of a time finding workers because those workers have quit and they found more meaningful jobs, my guess. It's afforded us the opportunity to come back to our families and learn the, relearn the art of cooking at home. Every time you go out to eat, you consume about 200 extra calories than you would if you just stayed at home and cooked at home. And I think as a rule, I prefer face-to-face -face conversation, but Zoom, like we're doing right now, it's given people a chance to connect with not only old friends, but new friends in a way that geography wouldn't have allowed. And people have started home offices. I think at the end of the day, it'll be good for longevity and probably happiness in the long run. I understand people are dying and suffering and losing their jobs, and that's incredibly painful right now. But I'm just thinking that in the long run, we're likely to look back and see a silver lining. So people are overwhelmed and stressed to the max. Can you talk about things we can do to reduce stress? Yes. Well, a nap works very well. You know, taking a half hour nap, what you might say, well, that sounds too easy. Well, actually, we know that people who take a nap, their cortisol levels drop. That's the stress hormone, just a 20 minute nap. People who are napping five days a week cut their chance of heart disease 
by a third. So napping is powerful. Religion. I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person myself, but I've looked at the data and people who show up to church or temple or mosque uh, once a week, they're slowing down and focusing on something other than their busy schedule or their stressful lives or whatever they have to be doing at work. They're focusing on a higher level. I think the practice of happy hour, not necessarily drinking to excess, but forced connecting with people at the end of the day it could be a happy hour walk or it could be just getting together to play cards or have a conversation. But that's a powerful way of reducing stress. The Okinawans have ancestor veneration where right in their house, they put a shrine to their grandparents and great-grandparents, and they spend a few minutes every day to remember where they came from. But they're not just a point in time, but part of a continuum. And I think that's a useful reminder. But these are things that can all downshift. Adventists pray before every meal. They'll, they'll stop and say a prayer and put some punctuation between their busy lives and the meal they're about to eat. They slow down. There's better chance that their signal of having a full belly will reach their brain before they overeat. We also know that if your body is thundering with stress hormones, you don't digest as well. Your food's more likely to end up on your backside than it is to end up as energy. So this idea of slowing down a little bit through articulating some gratitude for your meals, there's some wisdom to that that actually works. Everyone knows that a lot of kids are on their phones all the time. And I know that social media is important, but is there any way to reduce that? We did a, with National Geographic, a survey of 150,000 people, and we asked them how much time they spend on social media and their happiness level. And we found that people who are using social media up to about 45 minutes a day are optimally happy, actually. And we posit that they're on social media, maybe as intellectual repose for a few minutes, or they're using it to connect in the real world or to get some news. But then people who are using it more than 45 minutes, we see their happiness drop off. And the least happy people are spending eight hours a day on social media, which is, seems to be absolutely toxic. And people in blue zones are starting to get phones, but they're not on it all the time. I was just in Ikaria, Greece, about two months ago. Young people there, they all have the phones, but they're not on it all the time. And I think it's because there's such easy access to real face-to-face -face conversation that they don't need it. Whereas our environments have been engineered such, especially people living in suburbs, is it's so easy to implode into our homes and into our cars that we have a human urge for social connectivity. We default to this cheap proxy to face-to-face, -to -face, which is our phones. And it's a mistake. It's, it's going to have increasing ramifications, you know, short of banning it. I don't know what, I don't really know what to do, but it's not good. So Dan, as we're coming to a close to this wonderful conversation, is there anything that you can leave with our listeners? If there are any other questions people have, I'm very good at answering them. On social media, I'm at Dan Butner, and I answer everybody's questions personally. And every day I offer more insights on longevity. At Dan Butner, direct message me. Any questions you have left, I'll answer them. Wonderful. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Delight to meet you. Great to meet you, Dan. Sending you a telephonic hug from Miami. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.